Hi, this is Sam Ramji, and you're listening to Open Source Data. On this special episode, we're going to give you insight into the future of the podcast. Because today, we welcome Dr. Sharna Parkey. She's been developing AI and ML products for the last 17 years. She's worked with 90 of the Fortune 100 in her various roles, and through the acquisition of Cascada, is the AI product and strategy leader at Datastax. I'm incredibly excited to have her taking this podcast and making it her own, bringing the future of AI, data, and open source to the past that we've created together with open source data. So with that, Sharna, it's a privilege to have you on the show and a privilege to hand the reins over to you. Welcome, Sharna. What is new? (laughs) There can't be much that isn't new. Yeah, we've been running real fast since May. And so I've got a larger ops role and also a larger strategy role now. So I'm looking across the new product we just launched, Dragstack, and working with Lane Chain and others. And so there was that, but there was also the World Economic Forum. So I, I joined the Alliance and I just got out of some great working sessions last week at the summit. And so everything is just all generative all the time. Oh, no Um, kidding. How cool. Yeah. In San Francisco, there was a summit and it was the first time they convened on a single topic. So about 200 folks flew into San Francisco and we met at Salesforce Tower and then at the the forum's headquarters on site and did a bunch of working sessions across sustainability and transformation, responsible growth, all of these other topics, governance. And they had this app where everyone's photos and bios, and I tried like reading all that. That was a false thing. They had this reception before all the sessions started. And while normally those are a little like anxiety inducing, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I have to, because I need to actually make these people human in my head and not (laughs) who, who they seem to be on paper. Yeah. And they're part of your future cohort. Exactly. And they're probably feeling the same way about you. Right? I, I think so. That somebody said that. And it's hard for me to remember that even though I've been doing this for almost 20 years at this point, that that looks intimidating to other people. And I'm like, why? I'm just I'm just me. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's kind of the beauty, right? We're all just meing around. We're just trying to do our little things, creating a background of how new and exciting everything is and how overwhelming everyone's credentials seem. And Right. It creates a little bit more space for kindness. Yeah, it absolutely does. It, it, it kind of brings back the conversation we were having earlier about what interface should this be. I had this great debate about do we need to be making these things more deterministic, for lack of a better word, or is mm-hmm. is it a feature that the interface is something that can produce the average of us. My example was I have complex PTSD and I don't often know what's normal. And Mm -hmm. so I will go to ChatGPT just to paste in a conversation and ask it, is this normal? I kind of feel weird about it. And then, you know, it doesn't always come up with something good, but I can direct it and say, all right, tell me all the logical fallacies that might be going on here, et cetera. And I can get some point of reference to understand how I should be in a situation a little bit better than my general experience. So I remember we were talking about this back in, I want to say February. Yeah. About like, what would you want to use generative AI for? What does autonomousness look like? What would an autonomous future be for you that you were really happy with? One Mm -hmm. of the things I mentioned was like, I'm an autonomous agent that is like a a coach. 
Yeah. And I want to be able to turn to it and ask for coaching in the moment. And then I'd also like to be able to turn to it and ask for coaching post-talk so that I can keep myself even keeled and figure out how I keep moving forward. That has perked my attention ever since. I keep looking for those kinds of things. Like you saw Reed Hoffman and Mustafa Suleiman created Inflection AI, which has this new product called Pi. And so there's yeah. whole sense of all these personal intelligences kind of cropping up to help us with ourselves. It just seemed very insightful in that moment, looking back on your very sort of honest and courageous provocation. This is what I would want with an autonomous future. It's like, wow, that was wild. It was really not what I was expecting. And turns out a ton of people want it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's something about... I have had to use trusted friends in the past. Sure, you know, I've paid for a therapist, et cetera, but you can only recount certain parts of a situation in a clinical hour. And then you try and, and cross that over with an executive coach and you try to cross that over with all of the particular contexts and situations that you're in, whether you're in a boardroom or you're coaching someone or you're developing some sort of messaging. And it turns out therapy isn't the place where those micro... Mm, interruption moments can happen, right? You don't have your therapist on your shoulder all of the time. So right. how do I get all of my data together, my heartbeat from my watch and my temperature and all of that to kind of trigger this coach that can in the moment do or say something to me like, hey, try some four box breathing right now. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Your your paleo cortex seems a little hyperactivated. Try moving the blood flow. Deep breaths. <laughs> yeah. So what have you been up to since we last? I've been going crazy on the autonomous thing. So yeah. I started the company, me and two other ex-Googlers. We founded as a public benefit corporation, the first step before you become a B Corp. But I think it's important if you're building autonomous software, the implication is that it's going to take jobs over, right? And sort of destroy human opportunity. So to start out by having a intention to be a B Corp, to explicitly be a public benefit company so that, yes, we have a financial outcome that we're targeting, but we also have a social, we have an environmental outcome, and that those are all supposed to be treated equally by decision makers as part of the collective sort of governance responsibility, not strictly fiduciary for finance, but fiduciary across uh, all these things. So that's been a gift to be in those conversations, to write the charter. Like, why do we believe that open source AI matters? for the future that we're trying to build so that people can just make software operate for them, right? I, I think that the, sort of the focus of the company that I'm, I'm building is trying to raise the floor for SREs, for DevOps engineers, for operators to say like, there's a million things that you need to do. And some small number of them are really satisfying. And the ones that are satisfying are usually satisfying because they're complex. So a complex problem, you have to use your human curiosity to kind of get into it. You have to use some creativity to solve it. There's a lot of stuff that you do in operations, which is just complicated. Yeah. Right. So if you can work on complex things, that's pretty satisfying. If you work on complicated things, that can be satisfying. But mostly it's like what we hear in interviews is there's so many magic words to use when I'm trying to build this particular workload capability in Kubernetes. Or I realized I was spending $10,000 a month and my model is growing 5x every quarter. And so that's going to be way more soon. And it was just because somebody had set some feature flags to indicate <laughs> yeah. this cluster should not get deactivated because it was in test mode. There's just so much to keep up with. Right? So yeah. all complicated stuff. 
that really would be helpful to have something that knew the magic words and was always paying attention and was kind of serving you, right? So um, we're building this company called Sailplane. Uh, We're building a pilot. Much like Waymo says that their product is a driver, we're building a pilot for cloud software. So we're teaching it lots of skills. There's a long way to go, right? But we've taught it autonomous debugging. Um, There's a really cool paper from... Microsoft research called automated scientific debugging using large language models. And you can get the large language model to do some reasoning, right? You can get it to do chain of thought and tree of thought and play around with graph of thought so that it can come up with hypotheses of what is going wrong. My application is getting traffic. What could be going wrong? Well, people can figure this out, but how do we get that kind of context and reasoning as an application in the infrastructure, right? How do you do infrastructure operations as an autonomous process? What are the different intelligences that we use and what can we train and how do we partner with people? That's the biggest. And on top of that, we end up in this world where LLMs and startups are trying to recenter the average software developer, right? Someone who is going to be building these generative AI applications may not have an ops team, right? <laughs> this is exactly what we're expecting, is that there's sort of two phases in my mind. And figuring out how to build a company to make this work is the big challenge and opportunity. Maybe five to 10 years from now, in that kind of back half of the decade, I think there's going to be a ton of software that's going to be built nearly automatically mm-hmm. by people who have fine arts degrees, who are on the feeling sensing side of the world, and who are perfectly good, coherent, logical thinkers, but don't know programming languages. And they need to be able to get automation written. Great. What's going to operate that? By the time we get there, we had better have a whole army of robot operators that just knows how to look at software, get it up, keep it up, and just do it without ever bothering a person. This is like the no ops era. The first half is like the important stuff is all managed by people. Mm-hmm. Know the ops. So how do we get them to engage in machine teaching? How do we mm-hmm. get them? system to take the baton, right? It's one thing to offer the baton, but you, you have to let go, right? And <laughs> grab the baton out of your hand. It's an offering, right? So how do we build systems that earn that trust in a way that is human, yeah. right? Not to the point where your boss says, okay, now you have to stop doing that thing. We're switching off your credentials. The machine's going to do it. How do you yeah. do it in a way that it is about human agency and about the sense that you have of like, yes, I've trained this and I'm ready to let it go and it's going to make my life better. That's the challenge of the next half decade, I think. Right. I mean, there's some crossover here between building trust, as I think of moving from an eager intern to sort of a co-pilot to autonomousness, of demonstrating that you can be trusted, right? I'm about to make this decision, et cetera. But then there's the other side of it, which is the interface has changed and now it feels more like a black box. And so what type of trust do we need in terms of transparency and accessibility so that maybe we can actually end up in a world where we can fulfill some of those promises? Yeah. So the thing that I think is missing, there's an opportunity for us to all come together around framing whatever this new world of experience is. Mm -hmm. I keep coming back to the phrase conversational experiences. Yeah. We talk about chat, but chat's not really necessarily a conversational experience. A conversational experience to me is it's a dialogic experience, maybe, more than just conversational, right? It's You have two entities, at least, each of which has a model of the world, each of which has a model of the other, each of which has a model of the other modeling them, 
and mm-hmm. Egypt, which also has a model of the conversation because you want to see that the conversation's got some sequential coherent state and mm-hmm. it evolves. And right. so if you have that conversation with the technical person who's an operator who's responsible for software, that tree to what's the state and how is that progressing, it's going to come out in a, in a bunch of different modes. We can have a natural language conversation. I can go to the command line interface. I can type. I can produce configuration files that I've written and show them as evidence that I know what I'm talking about. Or I can make a proposal and I might do that with a diagram and say, well, here's what the architecture looks like. I'm proposing that we double the size of the database tier. And so for me to be trusted by you, you're naturally like a human going to be in an environment where you're like, well, draw it for me on the whiteboard and show me how you think it's going to move the metrics. So the metrics Mm -hmm. is the surface for this. And if you have a, a need to explain why you did all this stuff in sort of long form for a general team, probably need to generate like a blog, right? Or an article. So all of those different affordances, all those different modalities have to arise from this sort of dialogic experience. So that's the, the space of play that I'm, I'm most fascinated by. It's exciting. And so a lot of this came up last week in some of the, the conversations with folks about how are we going to get to this next phase and how are we going to do it in such a way that we bring folks along with us, right? And so I think this is a, a great way <laughs> to start down that path. It's interesting. I think back to when you were at Textio, right? And yeah. build effectively these trainers of people, right? So there's a sense that the system knew things. It knew that language was more likely to work to get the kinds of people applying for your jobs than the language you're using. Mm-hmm. And found different affordances to indicate like, hey, try this word instead of the word that you used. But then you want to know why that word? Help me understand some of how you're thinking. What's the math behind different comes for these different behaviors? So that for you was several years ago. So I'm super curious to see how your thinking has evolved since then, right? Because now you're yeah. built much more complex or enabling the complexity of like modern RAG applications, right? The explosion of language-based applications has been pretty profound and you've been in the thick of it. Yeah, it's fascinating because back in grad school, I remember playing with some of the LLMs and thinking, oh, we're <laughs> we're 20, 30, 50 years away from this being, you know, actually usable. I felt differently about some of the computer vision modeling that we were doing. It felt magical even then. But when I started at Textio, that was March of 2015 we were building bespoke language models because we wanted to not just predict what word would come next, but what the outcome of the word would be. And so for that, you had to have this feedback loop of, all right, so you've published these words in the world, something happened, and language changes over time. So what the cool kids are saying these days, I probably don't even understand. (laughs) And yet we're trying to hire them for jobs. And so that was the first sort of feedback loop type system that I had built where the customers themselves had to actually change their process of collecting data so that we could provide this type of insight for them. And, and so we called it the data exchange program. And everyone in terms of building trust, as we're talking about, needed to contribute back to the model because if it was governed by the data set of one company, well, then that's just building bias back in, right? Mm-hmm. And so we needed to have a global perspective, a multi-industry perspective, a multiple outcome perspective. And I think it was really hard. It was really hard. (laughs) But now it seems like we have this opportunity where the conversation and the place that society's at is different, where we want 
to contribute to the right set of data. When we talk open source data, we want to make sure that we have the right data to train this model in order to get the right outcome. We want to provide a lens of, all right, you are this persona. How would you say this thing? I do think that from a lot of what the LLMs have today, the outcome of those words are still missing. And we need to solve that. Like, is this piece of writing actually going to achieve the outcome I want versus am I following legal guidelines? Am I technically correct? Is my CEO going to like it? That doesn't mean you're achieving impact in the world, (laughs) right? So there's an aspect there where we've given feedback loops. It seems to be like, did I like the answer or not? But not, did I take an action? And so as we get to autonomousness, we're going to have to have an outcome or multiple outcomes associated with the reward of this system. Yeah, there's so much changing in the state of the art, right? RLHF, the thumbs up, thumbs down, you indicated is it's great, except it's terrible. It's great if the human is an effective assessor yeah. of whether that thing is actually good and are they able to connect that assessment with that outcome. You talked about collecting more and more data sets to avoid one company bias, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I think it's a totally reasonable framing. There's a bigger word that I keep running across lately, which is grounding. There's certainly an element of anything that we deal with. I personally believe that all cognition is bias. Yeah. Right? My degree is in cognitive science. One of the things that we trained on is attention. And to pay attention literally means to selectively choose what data is coming in from the world that you're going to pay attention to and what you're going to discard, which is also, to me, the definition of bias. Well, cognition is bias. But what do we care about? We care about grounding. Right? I'm mm-hmm. like passing my information as I'm driving to the most imp- important information, which is likely to predict whether I get to keep driving my car forward or whether I hit an obstacle or I keep everybody around me safe. So how do we keep yeah. safety as what we want out of these interactions and say we get that from grounding? Language that's going to produce very, very different interpretations for people and bad outcomes, it's actually unsafe. And you wouldn't use like an unsafe vehicle. You wouldn't use an unsafe car. You wouldn't eat unsafe food. It's funny things that's come around this dialogue of AI safety is, okay, no, actually, this is stuff that we're talking about running at scale, at speed, at a level that we've never imagined. You had better make sure that at the bottom layer of Maslow's hierarchy, that it's safe. I think it's interesting that you say we wouldn't drive a car, eat food that isn't safe. And I would argue that we do. And in fact, the cars that we drive with the recalls, they decided to do a recall once it's hit a certain scale that the lawsuit is going to be more expensive than recalling the cars to fixing the problem, right? So we do a certain degree of safety, but even for food, like my personal safety for food, if it's expired, I'm not eating it. But my partner opens it and smells it and is like, it's probably fine, right? (laughs) You know, I think that there's this, we have to have some degree of acceptable safety an acceptable risk. And we have to decide from our sort of impact risk of doing versus risk of not doing needs to come into the picture as well as what the degree of safety, like how much can I trust? How much should I hand over? Yes, you have to hand the baton over, but what are those checks and balances where it's like, alert, something's happened or time to recall this model or something, which has to be some sort of mechanism for that. Part of the gift of this age is that we end up shifting to a probabilistic understanding of the meaning of any word. Like safety is not binary, right? It's probabilistic. Risk is not binary. It's probabilistic. Even words like trust 
aren't binary, right? They're probabilistic and they're also contextual, right? Do you right. trust this thing? What does that mean? Well, do you trust it to do these particular actions to a level of consistency in this particular domain? Doesn't mean that you're going to trust it in all environments, right? So right. there's a lot more nuance that hopefully will evolve in this strange age of nuanced destruction machines. <laughs> yeah. And I think to your point for grounding and things like that, that's why recency augmented generation is amazing. And it's why for consistency, fine-tuning is a great idea in some cases. But I think that the way that we apply it is going to be interesting because we don't want to call an LLM for literally everything that we're doing. That's just dumping energy on the ground, right? If I've already answered a question and, and that is the right answer to the question, what is our caching mechanism? What is our ability to reduce cost? Everyone in my organization is probably going to ask this thing, let's cache the answer until it's no longer valid. What's our ability to forget? What's our ability to mark important? What's our ability to cache our short-term, long-term systems in such a way we can augment humans to get a better outcome? Yeah. Inability to forget is a kind of bias too, right? Yes. It's yeah. also anathema of building trust, right? Nothing is ever perfect forever. So at some point, mm -hmm. it's probably broken. So how does a system learn to forget those kinds of failures? There's an era, I think, that we're heading into where a reasonable tool for the mind for understanding and designing systems is radical anthropomorphism. Hmm. We've created such a strange domain over the last 28 years or so that I've been building software professionally around level of specialization and how much special thinking that we have to have about designing this particular interface and how does the software uh, respond. And in the new era, I think of 2023 and sort of these language-rich environments, I feel like, how would you want a person to interact with you? Yeah. The anthropomorphic element. And the radical part of that is you can apply that to pretty much every interaction you want for future software and ask the question. It simplifies a lot of the thinking, right? Instead of which of these 18 interface choices do we make, say, which one would you want to be presented to if you were talking with another person? And it becomes pretty evident. Yeah. And I think we were, it might have been February, March when we were talking about this, but this ability to interact the way that I want to be interacted with, right? We have this bias that we want to be treated the way we want to be treated. And we don't want to treat someone the way we want to be treated. We want to treat them the way that they want to be treated. That's a very difficult problem. What's well, sort of the but, difference between what they call the golden rule and the platinum rule? Do unto others as you'd have done to you and the platinum rule being treat other people the way that they would prefer to be treated. Super challenging. And brings me back to a conversation we had February, March timeframe around this ability to expose and control knobs. Like what colored glasses do I want to be wearing today? How do I want to be treated? What do I want the feeds or recommendations to be? And, and is it aligned with my values? And a lot of this is going to be behavior change. So it, can my autonomous agent do an ethical check against what I would do and how I want to get there, not just the outcome. And then how do I take those glasses off and hand them to you so that you can see what I can see in the world, right? And somehow we can bridge the gap between us while teaching an agent to bridge, like we're writing our own manual, essentially. This is how to treat Sharna. How can I, how can I give those to you sometime so that you can see the knobs that I need in order to more effectively connect? on a human level. And this is a really interesting problem that I think I've run across the framing recently of semantic observability. 
<laughs> so we take all the old words and we make them new again, right? Observability is something we know about for systems. We can see logs, we can run analytics. If there's too much information, then it actually becomes noise. How do we apply some statistics to it and start to find the outliers? And that's machine observability. But semantic observability, the sense that you pointed out just earlier, right? If you write this email, is your CEO going to like it? Yeah. Right? If that email is going to get you fired, then that was a bad GPT experience. <laughs> but how would it know? And I think this is a, a very deep area for us to work on for years to come. And it may not be mathematically closable. I don't know the, the structure of it. But for us to be able to have some level of automation testing around the semantics of situations is, is pretty profound. And, and again, something that you have a lot of hands-on experience with from when that was just a baby construct right back in 2015. Yeah. It's fascinating because I, I've been listening to the season as you've been going through and, and there was a couple of callback episodes or revisiting the past. And I thought it was fascinating that the throwbacks where we're talking about things like the native AI stack, et cetera, like the, these were conversations right to your point of these aren't new words, but these ideas and these feelings, it feels like when the world starts to converge on these ideas from multiple different points, so we're, we, we are becoming ready. And so I guess I was wondering from all the seasons and all the episodes and the throwbacks, like what are you left feeling at this point? I'm mostly left feeling awe. I had the opportunity to learn about data from the people who pioneered data in the most extreme scale and the most extreme systems. And in this profoundly ethical way, right? The provocation of open source data, it, it takes you down a certain path. People have never had the exact same answer to the question, what is open source data mean to you? But they've kind of grouped into a few different themes of thought, right? One is yeah. the, the data itself has been produced in a way that's open and understandable and all that's documented. Mm -hmm. Another is that the data itself is open and available to anyone to use broadly, right? which is obviously one of the most fascinating elements of what's happening for us in 2023 as we're looking for ways to train transformers, not just language transformers like LLM, mm -hmm. time series transformers. There are synthetic biology transformers. There are physics transformers for robotics where the tokens aren't words, right? but the tokens are events that are happening in an observable multidimensional space. And then finally, people talked about open source data as meaning that the tools used to create, process, and transfer the data are all open source. I think all of those are amazingly definitions. As they all come together, I feel like we're offering the conversation of our time, right? Every thread that we pull on, how do I trust this? Is mm -hmm. it biased? Is open source AI going to destroy the world? Is open source AI going to save the world? it all comes back to landing on what is the data? How do we think about open source as a movement? How do we think about it as transparency? How do we think about it as positive sum games? And how do we think of it as part of the, the scientific revolution? Right? We move from alchemy to chemistry by saying we're all going to look at the same data and we're going to aim for reproducibility. What do we do to help each other move the uh, state of the world forward, right? the state mm -hmm. of the condition forward, 
by encouraging reproducibility. And I think ultimately that thread is the most important one to pull. If we provide all of the sources needed for someone else to reproduce our work, then it will survive us, it will outlive us, and it can go off and multiply and do all sorts of amazing things in the future, right? Including simply being preserved for history, but we can get much more value out of all of the rules, recipes, and thoughts behind making the thing than just using the thing, right? That whole concept of, am I teaching you to fish or am I giving you fish, right? Empowerment and agency. Uh, and I think love is about giving other people power and not just things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was having maybe a less technically grounded conversation a couple of days ago about the creative commons and how does that, how do we end up with a commons that is open source data commons? Because we're intersecting not just what some would think is tabular data, we're intersecting creativity. We're taking people's books, thoughts, et cetera, and building some of these models. And so what is this new era of commons and how do we not just preserve the reproducibility, but preserve the ability for choice of being included or not so that we're not tripping over some of the ethical concerns of, say, taking a language from a country that maybe doesn't want it to have a transformer built on it instead of continuing to do what the the U.S. does very well, (laughs) which is just take things and put them on the internet and be like, no, it's open, go. (laughs) I don't know if you have thoughts on what the creative commons of the future for transformers might be. This is, I think, maybe the most important conversation for us to have collectively. And and I say that it's the one thing that we have so much shared fate in. Like the narrow things that I work on in my life and in my new startup around how do you build autonomous operators for Kubernetes, right? There's a set of people who are going to care about that. It's a narrow set. I'm happy with that narrow set. Those are my people, right? But look at the superset of all of the people who care about the change in how we relate and the change in how software systems support us. It comes back to, do we control our likeness? Can we trust and rely that the software hasn't been created to harm anyone, that it upholds our societal values. And I think this existential threat has been radically overplayed. The existential threat that you point at that open access to anybody's data represents is in the thinking system. Have I sowed the seeds of the loss of identity and the loss of control? Can we still choose that my songs are my songs and you can't train things on my songs unless you ask me nicely, in which case we have licensing agreements, right? So what we've had that's moved us out of the dark ages, I think, is our ability to license our ideas. It is the licensing of intellectual property that's given us open source software to say, under the Creative Commons, you can't ever close this, right? This is an idea that we give you that is only available if you choose to attribute it and you choose to pass it on to others in a form that they can add to. Or not. There's a whole range of those. But to become more intellectually rigorous about how do we want these things shared, that seems like a core part of the digital society that we want to create. So how do we start to absorb what we had created originally as externalities of cost for LLMs using things like Common Crawl, right? A data set that you pointed out, like just go over the entire internet and see what you can grab. 
Omicrol is super useful. You can train a lot of things on it. On the other hand, it's trained on all the things. Is that really what you want? It's going to be more expensive. It's going to be slower to actually mm -hmm. ask for consent, to pay someone for the sweat of their brow, right? And the inspiration of their heart. And we should do that. So we're kind of a little bit like the internet in 1995. It's just all the things. Let's explore, <laughs> try all the things, right? That's kind of AI in 2023. But yeah. we did figure out, and I'm pretty sure in the next few years, we will figure out how to say please, how to say thank you, right? How to mind our manners, all the things that we learned in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. We will figure out how to apply to our LLMs, whether it's open AI or anthropic or it's our own practices. And that's the thing that I'm tremendously excited about in the near future is that people are going to be in these conversations and figure it out, right? Be in the conversation mm -hmm. from the standpoint of, oh, woe is me. I can't do anything because I don't have answers to these questions. But instead to say, I'm going to try some stuff and I'm going to try to advance a bunch of causes at the same time. I'm going to try to build useful software and I'm going to try to build useful software in a way that advances the digital society and the rules that I believe in. So thank God for the EFF. Thank God for the Creative Commons as an organization, right? And everyone who's tried to advance our sense of the details of how we create open source and how we do source attribution. It's that's the thing that matters. Yeah. I, I think that's partially what I'm most excited about is that the conversation mm -hmm. is happening or we are not yet converging, but more and more people that traditionally haven't had the conversation are part of it. And to be in a room of C-level executives of some of like the global 2000 companies and they are asking, what are we doing about this? Is just a, such a different tone from 2015 when we were like, so you care about these things. And they're like, do, do I, should I, if I record this, if I log it, is that a liability? It's just a different conversation. And the experimentation is more companies are participating and not waiting, to your point. There's some concern about, should we wait until the tools are there, until the technology is hard? And, and across the board, the answer is no, we're not waiting. We're waiting on this use case, or we're waiting on full autonomy. But they're starting to create frameworks and grids about, okay, here are the use cases we can do today. Here's what we can experiment with today. And more people than I've ever known are experimenting. And I think like that, just the feeling of being part of that wave, it feels overwhelming in a good way, not overwhelming in a bad way. It's like, oh, <laughs> wow. I'm glad to be part of it. Yeah. There's no time to wait. You're a practitioner, you're a thinker, you're an educator, right? There's an opportunity, I think, in this moment that I'm excited about watching where you go, right? Who are you going to bring in to help educate? Because yeah. the thing that blows my mind is the amount of thought and insight that so many people have put into their work and being able to bring them and their best self and their best ideas into the podcast and then to take that out to everyone who didn't know that they needed to hear it. That's kind of the awesome accountability and responsibility and privilege of running this thing. Yeah. And that's, I think, part of the direction I want to take things is how to pull more and more of this conversation into the open with more and more of the people who haven't been part of it yet. We are used to having some of these conversations in an academic ivory tower type of situation or in a very technical 
practitioner perspective, but I, I often walk between those two, right? I put one foot in one, one foot in the other and see like what needs to be translated here, what needs to be translated there. I think there's this opportunity for the third pillar to be included that are some of the folks that we're impacting that are now somehow the subject matter experts that are feeding these things that are tackling this for the first time potentially. I don't know if some of them have thought about it before, but yeah. pulling that conversation out and making sure it happens. Absolutely. I think the gift is for practitioners. People are trying to figure it out. And the economic pressure is spectacular. Mm -hmm. The amount of excitement and fear about getting this right or getting it wrong or even worse, doing nothing at all, as you mentioned before, right? There's a sense of excitement matched with anxiety that says, I must build this application. Like how many development teams have gotten emails that were forwarded from their CEO and board this year to say, AI all the things and what's your progress? And can you give us a demo next week? So how do you marry that reality? How do you serve all the practitioners while also serving academics who are doing research? I've never seen a time where we were paid so much attention to cutting-edge research. It used to be that cutting-edge research is something that you'd think about putting in a product maybe five to 10 years down the road. Now it's like, oh, did you see the flash attention to paper? It came with an algorithm. Like, we're going to implement that thing. It was just published n weeks ago. We're already behind. And then those of us who are building the tech, right? So tech, academics, and practitioners have never needed to be connected more to really cement that combination as something that is basic in every conversation, right? So that nothing is ever strictly dialectical, but that you're you're bringing in that that third dimension, right? Making it fully real by bringing in the practice. I almost wish that I was going to grad school now versus way back when, because I remember pushing on my advisor being like, okay, but I'm only going to do this if it's applied. (laughs) And I wanted it to be grounded in reality. And I wanted to cross over my papers with a research assistantship grant, et cetera. And he's like, you're just making this harder on yourself, right? Like you just need to contribute something to the theory of the thing. And I was like, no, (laughs) it doesn't matter to me if I can't within the short term actually make an impact. Like there are people who I trust and care deeply about this problem of the 15, 20 year future, things are broken now. <laughs> I want to I want to make a difference now. And especially as we think about climate change and other things, we can't wait. We need to tighten that iteration loop. We need to have something in academia and out to industry and back rapidly. I, I don't know any other way to <laughs> progress from here. Yeah. So one of the things I'm super curious about is where do you want to go in the next few months, right? In the next season, do you have these themes that you're excited about, key people that you want to bring into this conversation? I haven't thought about the people specifically. I've thought about the persona. Part of what I was reflecting on in the last few episodes of this last season is this idea that the AI native stack is here or is forming now, right? So I think we need to revisit what that native stack is. And I think we need to pull in conversation from folks that are maybe not traditionally part of this open source conversation, both to steep them in it and to, you know, get out some of those questions of what does it mean to them and why are they participating now and and what does it need to be in the future? So I think the pairing of the AI native stack moving forward along with the adding that pillar of grounded in reality is really what I'm excited about. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of power in it. And being able to create data as a higher level primitive so that people don't 
get frightened of it so that they don't have multiple meanings and confuse themselves in conversation. I think there's a, a CTO level conversation for most Fortune 500s, which is about how much can you spend on the data? Where does the data belong? Who should own it? And who, who now owns the AI initiative? So there's organizational yeah. dynamics at play that hopefully people can come and talk about and start yeah. to give other people a society of friends who they can talk with quietly. I think it's one of the coolest things about the community that we can create through a podcast is all the people who now have language to talk about the issues and to, to speak quietly and advance their own progress and practice. So I think there's a new group that you're going to be able to bring in and connect. Yeah, yeah. I love the question that you ask folks of what questions should I have asked you? And I've realized that I don't know what question I should have asked you. So I should just ask what questions should I have asked you or would you want to be asked and and have not been? It's a powerful question. I think the question I would have wanted to be asked or should have been asked, you know, a year ago is if you started a company, what company would you start? But of course, now I'm living the answer to that, right? So I feel feel very fulfilled in, in being able to shape very particular things with my co-founders and solve hard problems and kind of throw myself at it every day. It's incredibly fulfilling. Maybe the question that I should have been asked is like, why haven't you started a company yet, right? You're 51. I just turned 52 since starting this company. Yeah. I think the, the power of that question has to do with identity, risk, excitement, creativity. Like what's the moment where people are telling you you should start something? There's lots of moments like that. What's the moment where you feel it in your bones? You can't escape it. It's the only thing that you can think about doing. You think about the problem every day. You care about it more than anyone you've ever met. Every time you talk with somebody about it, they care about it a lot, but then maybe they do or don't act on it. And you just think, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen because I put my heart into it every single day, like every minute of the day. And why did I wait so long? I I think that's a question I'm going to have to recur with for some time, but... I do think that there's a timing that your body knows, like the tree knows when to leaf. It also knows when to pull back and go into wintering. And we kind of go through these these cycles of summering and wintering in our lives. I think COVID was a good time for many of us to winter. But somehow the shift over the last year of seeing things open up again, and especially in the world of AI, just everything is spring every day. It seems like today is the slowest day in the future history of AI. Have part of it have to participate. So the serendipity of that times the people who care about it just made it incredibly compelling for me. And I would encourage anyone who's thinking about starting something right now. There's a great quote from uh, the German philosopher and poet Goethe, which is, whatever it is that you can do or believe that you can do, begin it. For boldness has power, genius, and magic in it. I'm I'm looking forward to someday having that feeling in my bones. I've often been asked similarly, why haven't you started a company yet? And I'm just like, it's just not there yet. I need to hallucinate the reality that I want to exist and then make it happen. <laughs> you point at a part of your body, sort of your solar plexus, right? There's, yeah. there's so many nerves that happen here. And I feel like that is a place that knows more than our frontal cortex, right? That is like this integrative point. And that's, that's where I knew. I yeah. didn't know in my like front 10% of my skull, that it was time, right? It was that I knew it here, right? Mm-hmm. And it sort of radiates outward and you get a little antsy a bit and a little wiggly and you're like, okay, all right, all right, I'm going to do something. 
Right. Yeah. Your energy connected from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head. There's a great Mary Oliver poem as well, which says, "One, one day you finally knew, and so you began." Whatever it takes to have that happen, you'll know. Yeah. And until then, I'll check up on you frequently and see how you're doing. <laughs> yeah, well, I will have the easier job of the two of us because I will simply be able to tune into Sharna Park's <laughs> open source data podcast and I'll know at least a little bit about what's going on in your life and That's questions true. that you have and what's bringing you to inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I hope that for anyone who does want to be on the podcast. I am sort of an open book. Any conversation, any topic is sort of available. I'm not like a risk averse kind of a person. So if you want to have that conversation, oh, I will have it with you. Shard of Harky with the blue hair is not risk averse. Yeah, Correct. No. No. <laughs> it seems like no accident that I've, I got to meet you in, in January, 2023. And your intellectual as well as your emotional courage is really tremendous. So I'm just really excited to see who you bring in, where you take the conversation, and where you go from here. Thank you. I have admired and respected you and your career and your engagement with people. I remember the first day that we met and the speech that you gave that room about, you know, I'm asking for your trust. And I was like, oh, I need to know this person. <laughs> so I, I appreciate the sentiment. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to moving Cheers from being the host to being a fan. I'm backstage with our executive producer, Audra Montenegro, for the last time on Open Source Data. Audra, this is bittersweet. We've generated some incredibly high-quality conversations with people who have demonstrably changed the world and invented the basis of the world of AI and data we now depend on ranging from high-scale data systems to the world's fastest Python infrastructure to new ways to think about AI ethics to how to keep your data warm, cozy, safe, tight, and clean. So many different eras over the last five seasons, and it's been an extraordinary learning opportunity for me. Really a privilege to be able to turn things over to Sharna Parkey. As I mentioned on the show, meeting her in January of this year, I was really struck by her nature of being a full-stack human, someone who thinks deeply, practices deeply, cares deeply, and is a great educator, and frankly, an outstanding executive. So I think she's going to be a lot of power and authenticity to the future of open source data. Yeah, well said, Sam. I think full-stack human is very exemplary of the show in itself. And I'm so glad that you took my instigation with a leap of faith and decided to host a show that covered so many topics from data meshes to observability to vector search and microservices and now generative AI. And going from 300 downloads per episode or thereabouts and now over 2,000, I feel like the podcast is in a healthy state and there's no better human in my mind to take it on, such as Sharna Parkey. And so I personally would like to thank the Caspian Studios team for 10xing our followers and making such a professional experience for us and our guests. And then Sam, it's just awesome to have the partnership with you. And hopefully we can do a podcast in the future together. Who knows? 
what your new company will bring. But yeah, thank you to our audience for being loyal. I hope you follow the podcast still. And if you see Sharna in person, propose ideas or simply subscribe and show your loyalty that way if you haven't already. Yeah, it's been incredible to work with you. Definitely the, the best thing I ever got pushed into. And I can't imagine a future in which I'm not hosting a podcast that's run by you. So oh, thank you. I'm incredibly grateful. Likewise. And I'm going to offer also a great deal of thanks to the Caspian Studios team. But first, let me remind folks, because this podcast has a history and it has a future. If you like the show, please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite podcatcher. And that heartfelt thanks. These are real human beings at Caspian that we've gotten to work with. Amazingly thoughtful, forgiving, empathetic, professional. We've done everything from videos to audio. The magic words, fix it in post. Well, who fixes it in post? Well, that would be our producer, Alexa Minter. Remember, it's Minter, not Winter. Not so Winter. Turn <laughs> For program management, the incomparable Vita Yuri. if it absolutely positively has to be done right, then you should call Vita and Kyle Reska. For audio and visual engineering, the seamless and perfect Callan Turnbull and Yaroslav Zukrashenko, and the thoughtful, kind, and disciplined Landon Pontius. Incredibly grateful to Datastax for sponsoring this show. We've brought so many new conversations to bear that we had no other avenue to be able to reach world traveling heights, the creators that we've seen. And I am incredibly grateful to Datastax for their ongoing faith and support of the show and in the future with Sharda Parkey. If I have the pleasure of meeting you in person, please stop me to say hi and what you appreciated about the show and what you think we could have done better. I will certainly be listening to all the future podcasts. So we'll look forward to seeing you later in the world of open source data and in the burgeoning future of open source AI. So long. Thanks for all the fish. Mm -hmm.